Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On today's episode, Dr. Terrell Campbell, lead organizer of the 2018 Bell da Costa Green Conference, discusses his experience with planning and developing a conference for medievalists of color. In particular, Terrell charts the process of collaborating with multiple individuals and organizations, the impact of video recording and social media on conferences, and the contemporary importance of studying and celebrating Ms. Bell da Costa Green. Hello, I'm Byron Gilman Hernandez with Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, and with me today is Dr. Terrell Campbell. Hi, how is everyone? And Terrell uh, was the lead organizer for the Bell da Costa Green Conference we had here at SLU. And, well, Terrell, if you could tell us a little bit about who Bell da Costa Green was first. Oh, Bell da Costa Green was a giant in the world of librarians. Um, she uh, was one of the first women of color who was part of the Medieval Academy of America. Uh, she was a fellow there, but she's probably most well known for building the J.P. Morgan Library, which is now the, J., uh, the Morgan Library and Museum. I came across Bell during my doctoral studies here at SLU. Um, she is the daughter of Richard T. Greener, who uh, was the first graduate of Harvard College and among one of the one of the first he was the first African American graduate of Harvard College and one of the first African American graduates of the University of South Carolina's law school. And so I came across her in a cursory way during my studies, and um, here recently over the last year, I've began to delve deeper into her life. All right. And so how did you first come across uh, Greener then? Well, I was working on my dissertation, which focuses on uh, representations of black masculinity in American literature. And I was working on my second chapter. My second chapter focused on um, John Henry Days and uh, the mythic figure of John Henry. There are many stories about John Henry and, um, you know, he exists in the North, he exists in the South, he exists in the West in some tales. So he's a very migratory figure. And Alice Walker and Ralph Ellison do a lot of work with John Henry as a um, as a what we re- refer to as the lumpen proletariat, particularly with uh, reference to African American theory and African American literature. And when I came across Greener, he was a historical figure who fit many much of the criteria associated with the lumpen proletariat. And so I began to to work with his story as I was um, making my way through my chapter. Um, Bell always was in the back of my mind um, because um, in his story, there's a book by Catherine Chaddock that covers his life. And while she doesn't go into great detail about uh, Greener's family that includes Bell, she does leave enough breadcrumbs there for you to recognize that he was estranged from his family. And when I began doing research on that family, I learned that Belle DaCosta Green was one of his estranged children. Um, her original name was actually Marion Greener. Um, and so I always wanted to look deeper into her, but um, I needed to finish my, my, mm-hmm. my, my dissertation and I didn't have time to. Um, one of my mentors from SIUE, Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, is a, um, it's a professor by the name of Dr. Eileen Joy. 
Um, she is very active on social media. Um, she's very active with Punctum Books and open access and things of this sort. And she is involved in a number of different uh, groups and cohorts and worlds within, within the landscape of medieval studies. And one of those groups is a group that goes by the name of Medievalist of Color. Um, and I've been following them for about a year now. And basically, it's it's a group of scholars who, for whatever reasons, um, have fallen outside of normative understandings or normative expectations of what a medieval scholar should be. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those scholars is Dr. Uh, Dorothy Kim out of Brandeis University. She wrote uh, she wrote an article inside um, in Inside Higher Education after the Charlottesville rally um, discussing the landscape of medieval studies since Charlottesville. And as you get to the end of her article, one of the things that she calls for is for us to pay greater attention to Belle de Costa Green. And I guess I kind of took it as a clarion call. Um, I, had, I had been wanting to return to Belle for, for, for a minute and I, I guess to be quite truthful, Bell intersected with a number of my scholarly interests. Um, Bell allowed me to take a look at medieval studies. She allowed me to take a look at African-American studies, African-American literature, feminism, early 20th century American society, and a number of things. And so I, I began to make contact with many of the medievalists of color to check their temperature on what they would think uh, about a conference honoring Bell held here on the campus of St. Louis University and with the support of the English Department, the Women and Gender Studies Department, African American Studies Program, the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Study, uh, the Department of Performing and Fine Arts, uh, a number of local St. Louis organizations and charities, Labankami Entertainment and Productions, uh, Equator STL, um, I know I'm leaving someone out, it but, was quite a list, yeah. uh, but with, uh, with, uh, with the support of a number of, of people, particularly professors and scholars and graduate students here at St. Louis University, we were able to pull off the, the event. All right, yeah. Uh, including you, Byron. Thank you very much for your volunteering. Well, I mostly uh, sat on a chair all day, <laughs> but it was a different chair than the chair I was planning on sitting at all day, but I appreciate the opportunity to help out with the program. Um, but yeah, no, uh, it was a very large group of organizations and people involved in it. Would you be able to sketch out for us sort of a timeline of the process of putting together a conference like this? Ooh. Well, first and foremost, let me give a, a big, huge shout out to uh, Dr. Ruth Evans. This thing really doesn't happen without her Without her, if you know Dr. Evans, it's hard to describe <laughs> her essence. Um, but okay, so at any rate... I would say um, late July, late June, I'm sorry, late June, I began to sketch out the ideas for the, um, for the conference, trying to get an idea of what it would take, who I would need, and so on and so forth. So, yes, I got started on this thing very, 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 very late. Um, I started planning for it in late June, and we actually pulled it off um, November 30th. So there was no way I could have pulled this all together that quickly by myself. But the timeline went like this. Started planning and, well, began developing the idea in late June. 
this was going to be my first year here at St. Louis University as a professor and not as a graduate student. And so um, the possibilities to reserve rooms and to just make certain contacts and to network in certain ways opened up in ways to me um, that were a little different compared to when I was a graduate student. And so I began to uh, map out what locations on campus I would need, who I would need to contact, and who I would want as speakers at mm -hmm. the conference. I contacted those speakers, um, starting with Dorothy Kim. Mm -hmm. um, I got in contact um, with Dorothy Kim, and, and we um, began communicating rather fluidly by about the beginning of August. I would say at about mid-August, um, before school started, Dorothy Kim was fully in on the idea and wanted to know what she could do to help to facilitate um, things. I developed a call for papers and I ran it past a few people who I um, felt certain confidence about um, who would let me know whether or not the idea was good and wh or whether or not the idea was bad. After I got feedback from those parties, I contacted Dr. Sita Shiganti and I contacted Dr. Monica Green to see if they would like to participate in the conference as, um, as speakers. Once I contacted those ladies, um, I think we were about to begin school then, mm -hmm. and I was in a bit of a quandary because um, I'm stationed in African American Studies Department and I'm stationed in the uh, English Department. Mm -hmm. And um, my boss for African American Studies had not made it to the campus of SLU yet. So I had to kind of make a decision about whether or not this was something that I wanted to go with publicly before I could speak with him and he would not be here until two weeks after the school year began. So I did a lot of praying, I crossed a lot of fingers, and I made a call for papers. And I sent out the call for papers. And one of the first people to respond to the call for papers was Dr. Ruth Evans. And she wanted to know what she could do to help facilitate bringing the conference to and how she could help. I can't tell you what Ruth did, but I know that after Ruth got involved, the number of people who began to reach out to me and began to offer help to bring the conference together just multiplied exponentially. Jonathan Shu from George Washington University, Melissa uh, Riley, she had 833 names, um, at, um, at Lindenwood University. Um, oh, I'm, I'm leaving a ton of people out because I'm nervous and trying mm -hmm. to remember their names. But people began contacting me from all over, uh, all over the place, and I knew we were on to something. And so I, um, I, met with, I met with Toby, who's the head of the English department, and I met with Dr. Christopher uh, Tenson, who's the head of the African American Studies program. I sat down with, with, with those two individuals for a moment, and then they had a meeting without me. <laughs> and then we sat down again, and they told me that it was something that the departments would be anxious and eager to support um, and to sponsor in any way that they could, which was the green light and the mana from heaven that I needed because that also opened up a lot of doors and facilitated um, facilitated a lot of things. It um, gave me the confidence to reach out to other departments 
around SLU. And so I touched base with Dr. Penny Weiss out of the Women's Gender uh, and Studies Program. I feel like I'm not saying that right. Women and Gender Studies <laughs> Women and Gender Studies Program. <laughs> um, I touched base with um, the Department of uh, Fine and Performing Arts. I touched base with... Um, Oh, Teresa, how am I forgetting Teresa? Teresa Harvey and um, and Dr. Madden out of the Center for uh, Medieval and Renaissance Study. They were extremely helpful in helping this uh, conference to come off um, because they've planned so many conferences and they know vendors and they and they uh, they know uh, the efficiency of the campus uh, about what services might might fit the conference's uh, you know uh, desires best. Instrumental in 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 helping the conference come off, and this is all happening right at the start of this the semester. This is all happening right at the start of the semester. So I am balancing, you know, getting teaching loads underway, getting to know students, and so um, when when Ruth came in, she brought um, Katie Katie Eck with her, who I believe is her research assistant. Right. And so that that helped to spread the workload a bit. And once Katie came in, the graduate students started coming in. Yourself, Anessa Kimna, Natalie Whitaker, Amy, uh, Amy, Amy, Nelson. Amy Nelson. Who am I leaving out? It was like a pretty a, broad. It, it a lot of people a, just showed up for a few hours. Because once just... once that cohort got in, they took it to ego. Um, and once ego, once ego people start learning about it, people start falling in out of uh, out of the woodwork. So, I would like to take a lot of credit for bringing the conference together and organizing it. But I think I think that really what happened was it was the intersection of a lot of um, topics and interests that a number of our graduate students, our our faculty members, and a number of graduate students and medieval scholars and faculty members throughout the nation desired, right? And so it seemed to hit a chord at just the right time to um, bring the necessary eyes in. And I tell you what really, what really kind of got us going was once Jonathan Shu placed the call for papers the call for papers in the um in in the middle, it got the attention of the Morgan Library and Museum. Mm. Christine Nelson from the Morgan saw the call for papers in in the middle, and she contacted me. And the same happened with oh my god, uh, Lisa Fagan Davis, I believe her name is. I hope I'm not uh, mispronouncing her name or. or, or but um, from the Medieval Academy of America, she touched base with me. And once I was able to tap into those networks, the word about the, the conference began to spread even more. So I would say by about late August, word had spread about this conference to quarters that I had never imagined. Mm -hmm. So we had to do it. <laughs> so it had to be pulled off. And um, so, yeah, so... You were uh, had a, a minor in medieval studies mm -hmm. yeah. here, but yeah. your dissertation focus is more contemporary American. Did you feel like you were not that you never knew it existed, but you just never encountered it before? No, that... when when I was doing when I was doing my master's studies at SIUE, and I should start by saying that, mm -hmm. you know, it 
while I've always been involved in African-American studies and I've always read African-American literature, it wasn't until my time at SLU during my doctoral studies that I actually trained in African-American literature. Mm -hmm. Um, For the vast majority of my academic career, I've been in a number of fields other than fields associated with African-American literature, culture, or society. Um, I, began, I began my career as a historian, focusing on middle, midi, I mean, <laughs> middle Eastern languages and cultures. I have a minor in Middle Eastern um, literature, so I've always done some things in literature. I moved on to get master's in teaching, and I got master's in English and master's in history. I've never truly solely focused on African-American literature. During my time at um, SIUE, I focused on 20th century French intellectual thought. I I focused on um, medieval studies. I focused on 20th century, uh, I mean, 19th century realism. I focused on 20th century Hmm. um, post-structural thought, post-modern thought. And so what happened was when I was doing my um, master's thesis, I, was, I, I, I attempted to pull off a master's that used a lot of medieval uh, theory and approaches to literature mm-hmm. for my analysis of Native Son wasn't the most successful scholarly endeavor, but um, many of my failures allowed me to see how I can make intersections between approaches to medieval studies and medieval theory and how I might use those with my approaches to um, studies of African-American literature. So we fast forward to my time here at, at SLU, and while I wasn't able to bridge the gap between medieval studies and African-American literature for my doctoral studies, mm-hmm. I was able to uh, pursue a minor in medieval studies, which allowed me to continue to keep my feet wet in, and stay involved, and in, stay the involved field. in the field. Right. So, um, so I've, I guess for me, I've been anxiously awaiting an opportunity that allowed me to bring these two fields together. Mm-hmm. And Belle DaCosta Green, as a, as, a, as a woman of color or an African-American woman, if you will, who passed in order to work at the J.P. Museum and, and Library, in order to build J.P. Morgan's library, you know, she fell right in line with the themes of the, the, the novel of passing that exists um, within African-American um, literary studies. And so it allowed me to, to, to pursue two strains of, of, of thought, two strands of study at the same time because she was so actively involved in um, collecting medieval, rare medieval manuscripts as well. Well, now that the conference came together mm-hmm. and it happened, well, what's next? Do you have future plans for this? Or? Yeah, well, with respect to the, the, the conference, um, there are a number of projects that I'm, I'm looking forward to. First, um, we we, um, we videotaped the conference, so mm-hmm. the, so the conference is on tape, and so the documentary of 
the conference um, will be coming out. I do believe I'm going to make that available to everybody on, on YouTube. I just have been waiting for some time to sit down and decompress <laughs> because we had the conference and then ending. came to the end of the semester and, mm -hmm. and grades and everything. So I haven't had an opportunity to start the editing process of, of all of the footage that we collected over the three days. But I want to put um, I want to put the the conference out. Um, I would like to make a documentary style. I'm also looking to publish the the, the conference proceedings. I've been um, I've been in contact with a number of publishers, if you will, who 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 are interested. But I want to say I've been also been in contact with uh, a number of the the participants in the conference to to you know gauge their temperature on it. And so I'm looking forward to putting out the conference proceedings, and I'm looking out to I'm looking forward to putting out um, a, a documentary on the co on the conference, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, I'm engaging in more projects with the medieval list of color. Um, there was so much networking that took place um, during the conference, and so many um, brilliant ideas shared that I'm looking forward to being able to plant some of those ideas in more fertile. Fertile and more fertile soil, and to see what might might come of them. But specifically, right now, um, I'm looking forward to having discussions with Dr. Joy um, about publishing the conference proceedings, and um, I'm looking forward to getting the documentary out there. Uh, speaking of the documentary, so Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina is more formally about using uh, multimodal forms in the classroom. We stretch the definition of what counts okay. for that a lot, but. Uh, with the filming, like, where did you, was that an idea you had from the beginning? And I knew that I wanted to record the event just to record it. I, um, I feel like it was, um, I feel like it was a groundbreaking event. I found like, I felt like it needed to be recorded for history. I felt like it needed to be made available for those who weren't able to be there in person. I had never come across an event like it before. And so um, to be quite truthful with you, I was a little ambivalent. I did not know how people would feel about being recorded. And so I did not come into it thinking, hey, let's make some type of documentary about this thing. I really just wanted to mm -hmm. record the proceedings. Um, but everybody was so gracious about it and everybody thought it was such a great idea that I said okay well since I have everyone's blessing let's try to make this as best as we can now I was a one-man crew <laughs> running around manning cameras all over the place but um, I, if, if I'm to be truthful it really just started off as let's capture this gathering of people yeah and it's i remember i was one of the people handing out uh release mm -hmm. forms, forms for image yeah. and we actually kind of ran straight up into an issue that's i'm encountering more at other conferences but people talking about uh live tweeting mm -hmm. and issues of like uh specifically like don't lie i'm gonna have a part in my paper where i'm gonna ask people not to live tweet it mm -hmm. that was certainly something that yeah, that was something that um, that was something that I had not run up against. But if I'm, I, I will admit that I I I saw its head beginning to rear when I was um, earlier earlier on in my um, doctoral studies when I was presenting at conferences with more frequency. Um, I began to see that there were times when people did not like the fact that their research that perhaps they hadn't worked all the way through or they hadn't, or just the fact that it was their research and they couldn't control how it was being disseminated. They did not like it being live tweeted. And so we tried to respect 
everyone's wishes when it came to please don't live tweet now, please don't record this now. There were many instances during the conference where a presenter may have said, hey, I don't have a problem with you recording, but this first five minutes of my paper, I would like for you not to record. Mm -hmm. And so we would simply hit stop <laughs> then, and, and they would say, okay, it, you can you can record now. And we would record again because I felt I felt it was such a privilege to be able to be allowed to record the, the, the people that we had gathered that I did not want to disrespect their wishes or desires in any kind of way, shape, form, or fashion. And it certainly felt like, you know, engaging with media in that way, uh, I mean, it kind of reminded me that what being a medievalist of color and having a conference for that is actually kind of a dangerous thing. You know, we were, um, when I first when I first came up with the idea, and particularly with the invitation that, that we extended to Dr. Dorothy Kim, because her, uh, her travels <laughs> mm -hmm. through this terrain haven't been the best. It was a, it was a big concern, but I'm born and bred in St. Louis. Um, I'm St. Louis boy, and, and and while we might have some difficulties sometime here, I did not feel I I felt I felt safe here, mm -hmm. right? I just did not feel that that we had some of I did not feel like our climate here at St. Louis University was anywhere near the climate of some of the other universities and some of the other and some of the other locales where conferences are taking place where medievalists of color are having difficulty getting their message across having difficulty with the presence of their bodies and spaces i did not think that we would experience that here at st louis university particularly with our particular particularly with our position within the world of medieval studies um, not only nationally but globally i did not think that we would have those uh, problems here and we were proven right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I meant more on like the sense of like we have a space here that mm -hmm. is like you know um, where people feel comfortable and able to speak. But when you introduce Twitter and recording into the mix, that you leave that space and there is a danger. Yeah. Oh, there's there's definitely a danger, and and we encountered this not only in our uh, in our roles. We encounter this not only when we deal with social media in our roles as uh, faculty members, perhaps through our official accounts at, at, at the universities we're a part of, but in our private lives as, as regular citizens. This was not something that was going to deter this effort, though, right? I can't, I can't speak on everyone's interaction with, with, with people on social media, but the people who were invited to this conference and the people who showed up to this conference were willing to brave those potential dangers in order to see this conference come through. I, I, I'm still amazed, Byron, um, and still on a certain type of high about this conference. I did not know it would touch the heartstrings, the intellectual heartstrings and the emotional heartstrings of so many people. And so I recognize I recognize the dangers, if you will, that, that many of the participants were up against. I can only share with you their stories that they share with me and their desire to be at the conference in light of all of that. Yeah. Well, kind of coming to the end here, but I realize there's something I'd feel I'd uh, I've missed out if I didn't ask you about it. But uh, we haven't talked about Big Piff. <laughs> Big Piff. Big Piff. Big Piff is a unique unique so uh big piff is a good friend of mine um we both attended stanford university together um he wasn't in my cohort but um our years there overlap 
I guess a good way to put it is um, I have a good friend at Stanford and um, he and his younger brother attended Stanford. Piff is good friends with my friend's younger brother. So we're always in the ah. same circles mm-hmm. all the time. And that's one of the reasons why we've been able to keep in such close touch after graduating from school. Uh, but Piff, uh, Sean Morrow, um, Epiphany Morrow, um, he's an artist out of uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, um, who is a global icon. Um, he's taken rap and he's used it to to his advantages for community building in places I can't even pronounce uh, around the globe. But um, he runs, what is it? Um, he runs uh, He runs an organization called uh, Global Arkansas uh, Kids, Inc., and he also runs um, I Am Not Them, Inc. And, and these are organizations that are his vehicles for putting, his, putting forth his vision in the world. He's a tremendous talent, a singer, a songwriter, a, a, a ranger, a TED Talk speaker. And so I thought that it would be great if we can get him to create create us an original song for the conference for Bell DaCosta Green. Um, and I hope you had an opportunity to I was to actually out for that. Oh. And that was one of my, I, I missed a lot of the conference okay. being up okay. front. And I, okay. I'm excited to hear the, the recording though, because yes, yeah. it is. Um, well, there's a, there's not only, there's not only a recording of his performance, but there's an actual recording of the song that's available mm-hmm. on, online too. So I'll make sure that I'll, I'll get that, get that to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, when it comes to hip hop and rap, sometimes it gets a, a really a bad name, and perhaps sometimes it is warranted. But um, Piff's ac- approach to craft is one that is um, that is not only didactic, but I think that is useful and it is welcome in in, in a number of, of environments. So I thought yeah. that he would be great for the. Did conference. you know you wanted to have um, a performer from the very beginning, or did you know Piff? Not well. What happened was, man, I tell you how things just kind of fell in the line for this thing, right? So, I am, um, I'm on the, I'm on the net mm-hmm. one, one, one evening, right? And one of the places that I, I frequent a lot is Rolling Stones, Rolling Stones magazine, right? Mm-hmm. And so I go to their website, <laughs> and Stephen Colbert is on their website, right? I'm like, oh, it's a Stephen Colbert interview. I like Stephen Colbert. Let me check out what Stephen is talking about. So I click on the link, and Stephen Colbert is talking about this Chance the Rapper song with um, Childish Gambino. I'm like, oh, I've got to listen to this. Stephen Colbert is talking about Childish and, um, and Chance the Rapper. And at any rate, Stephen Colbert goes into this thing that, that um, he'd never heard um, anyone use this old medieval structure in their rap before and he remembers it from the lay of the Arendelle from his time in school you know he went to one of these mm-hmm. schools that is a, a well staffed well where they teach you well right and um he has this liberal education and so he has this he has this lay of the Arendelle structure stuck in his head since he's been like a little kid right and he said that he'd never heard anyone use it in a song let alone a rap other than what Tolkien had meant for it when he came up with it, right? And so he says, he's listening to uh, Childish Gambino and he's listening to Chance and their rap structure in this song, he says, um, he's, he's picking his mind, he's picking his mind and he can't figure out where he's heard it before, he can't figure out what he's heard it before and he finally dawns on him, it's from the lay of the Arendelle. <laughs> and I go, huh, I go, huh, that would be neat if I could get someone who could appreciate, first of all, a medieval rhyme structure, right, of some sort, 
and who who I who I thought was a good enough artist who could then transfer that mm-hmm. to a hip hop aesthetic and it be palatable and acceptable and not just kind of you know cheesy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Piff is not only a dynamic artist; he's a very intelligent man, right? Right? He's a very intelligent dude. And so I thought, if anybody fit the bill to uh, to bridge these two worlds, this medieval approach, man, you should have saw, it, man. <laughs> I sent him all kind of, I sent him all kind of stuff. I'm talking about polyphonic this and antiphonal that, and he's like, man, look, what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna settle on something that you consider to be. A medieval melody that we can recognize as reflecting that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little of this structure and add it in here and there. So he did his thing on it, but yeah, man, I credit that to uh, to Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert um, gave me that idea. Um, he was just musing about Ch- Chance the Rapper and Childish Gambino and Lay of the Arendelle, and I thought, yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. And so I charged Piff with that. And he gave us the ballad of Bill DaCosta Green. Well, uh, Terrell, thank you so much for being here and recording. Thank you, my man. Thank you uh, for organizing that conference. No, hope it hope it turns having out that okay. idea. No, man, it um, it 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 was a passion of mine, and um, I'm, I'm I was I was happy with the response to it more than anything. I was I was happy to be able to. A lot of people. A lot of people put a lot of faith in me <laughs> on this. A lot of people, um, a lot of people put a lot of faith in me for this, and so I am. I am happy that it was so well received, and that so many people got so much good out of it. And I, I, I was happy that I, I, I didn't let anyone down. First and foremost, myself. So, you know, thank you all, and for everyone listening. Thank you for listening. All right. <laughs> If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, share an assignment, tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Byron Gilman Hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.